0: Welcome, everyone, to the m Healthcare Insights podcast. I'm your host, Mark Thomas. I'm also joined by one of my co-founders, Andre Ulloa, who is an executive advisor with us. And today we have a great conversation planned for you. Uh, we have a partner from Regal Healthcare Capital Partners with us to talk about the future of healthcare, and we have a few questions loaded up for that. And without further ado, I think we should just jump right into the conversation and get to the, the bulk of what this, this episode will be about. So I wanna welcome Terry Wang to the podcast. Welcome Terry. He is again, a partner at Regal Healthcare Capital Partners. He received his BS in finance and management from Wharton and his MBA from Harvard Business School. So thanks for joining us. Thank you.
1: Uh, Hey everyone, before we start, just wanted to give a a quick background on, on Regal, who we are. So I'm a partner at Regal. We focus on lower middle market healthcare services. We just raised our third fund, which is uh, 415 million of committed capital. And we typically look for companies in the 10 to 40 million of revenue range, two to seven million of EBITDA, but we can also start companies from scratch, back founders or management teams that want to do a
0: buy and build somewhere. And we look across the entire spectrum of, of healthcare services. Thanks, Terry. So let's uh let's start the conversation there. Um as you approach the market from an investment and an M&A standpoint, what do you see that is next for the healthcare industry? Yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. Uh look, I think there's a couple
1: big trends uh that are happening. So so first of all, we all know that healthcare is very expensive. Uh and if we don't do something to control costs in healthcare, it's going to consume the entire federal budget. It's already the, the largest line item for state governments, for the federal government. And so there's a lot of attention and focus on how do we make healthcare more accessible, more affordable, more convenient. But the affordability piece is the most important. And so I'd say there's there's two broad areas I'd highlight. One is how do we start shifting services outside of the hospital? For a lot of services and procedures, it costs two times as much to do in the hospital as it does in an outpatient or in the home setting. Uh, So we spent a lot of time here at Regal thinking about what are the different types of services or delivery mechanisms that can shift care out of the hospital. The second big area is how do we move towards more of a value based care system? Right. Healthcare historically has reimbursed our providers on fee for service. Uh, Didn't matter whether you delivered quality care or not. Didn't matter if the patient got better. Didn't even matter if the patient came back to you. In fact, sometimes it was better if they came back to you because you could bill them again. Uh, and what we're seeing is slowly, but gradually and persistently, the system is moving more towards value-based care. And that has a huge impact on how people get paid, but also on what services are valuable in healthcare, right? In a value-based care world, it is much more about preventative mechanisms. It's much more about taking care of patients before they become sick, uh, and much more about thinking about the patient holistically. Their behavioral health needs, their social needs, right, and not just about the end procedure at the end. So we spend a lot of time thinking about how how is a company that we're investing in going to succeed in a value based world, in a world where it, it is about preventing, you know, the need for care versus just delivering care when it's
0: needed.
2: So Terry, in that regard, so when you look at the, getting patients out of the hospital, right. We see the the trend in terms of you know investment or you know integrating uh, these systems. Uh, You know we've talked about this before, where you see the the hospitals seemingly integrating uh, a lot of these services that traditionally may have been third party services. You know the home healths of the world. Um, We see a lot of those hospitals over the years consolidating those services. Um, so is the market, uh, saying pushing back against what I think you, you make perfect sense, what I think makes sense in terms of the patient, but is the, is the hospital in particular, those integrated network markets, are they, are they still consolidating or are they seeing that, Hey, this doesn't work if we keep these patients close to the hospital or we hold them accountable in terms of hospital, uh, the, the, the hospital visits or within the, the network of the hospitals?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Look, uh, in the recent history, I'd say the last 20 or 30 years, you've seen a lot of health system consolidation. So hospitals buying other hospitals and then raising the rates or hospitals buying referral networks. So primary care doctors, right? Um, and then raising the rates. And I think it's gotten to a tipping point now uh, where payers, whether it's Medicare or commercial insurance payers, are, are fed up paying these high prices, right? And so a hospital system can still succeed Acquiring and merging, um, but they're not going to be able to continue raising rates like they have in the past. Um, they're going to be forced to operate in a value based world. Uh, on top of that, a lot of more forward thinking health systems and hospitals are voluntarily putting themselves into risk based arrangements. Um, so they have, for example, their own accountable care organizations, ACOs. Uh, and so now they're on the hook for, for, you know, the, the cost of the population that they're treating. And so I think more right. forward-looking hospitals, it's not just going to be about, well, let me gobble up the local doctor groups and raise the rates. It's going to be, well, how do, I, how do I thoughtfully manage costs in a given population? And that may mean I acquire someone or it may mean I partner with someone. But ultimately, the end goal is not to raise rates as much as I can, right? The end goal is to actually get these patients healthier. And, oh, by the way, as
2: I get them healthier, I'm going to profit as well. And, and so does it stay fragmented in, to a certain extent in terms of those services uh, that because you have to you have to have both, right? As, you, as you're saying it, you have to sort of move the patients away from the hospital uh, network. And, and really, I think when you talk about when I think of hospitals, too, I also think about uh, corporate uh, yes, consolidations. Right. And and, and looking running uh, patients. As you would customers through a through an industry agnostic corporation, right? Like you, these patients are, have different needs, and uh, you know one product or service does not fit yeah. all. Uh, there might be certain things you can integrate into a, a larger corporation setting uh, or a hospital ne- integrated network. But in terms of the the patient themselves as individuals, to to treat them and make sure that they don't come back. To those hospitals you have to be specific about and bespoke about that treatment so is so the question then becomes how do you look at a patient um how do you see a patient uh in you know in the future uh being treated in the best way right you you value-based model it but then are the services that they're getting are those in markets that are fragmented or segments of healthcare that are fragmented yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. You know, a- Avalier put out a study. Uh, it was actually eye-opening
1: to me. And I think a lot of people that, to your point, 72% of physicians are now either employed by hospitals or by a large strategic group, like a Optum or, or a you know, or even a healthcare private equity-backed company, right? So when people say, oh, like healthcare is very fragmented, it, it depends. Um, but a lot of the physician groups, it's actually not fragmented. Um yeah they have already consolidated. I mean, this has been going on for decades now, but COVID actually really accelerated that consolidation. I think the open question is going forward, are you going to see some of these groups break out, right? Because sometimes when a hospital acquires a group, it's like a five-year or 10-year contract. And at the end of the contract, the group has, has, an, has an exit clause. And we actually have spoken to some groups that want to leave the hospital system. And that's actually an opportunity for um, investors, uh, or, or for even strategic buyers to, to help facilitate that transition out. Um, but when you look at specialties like primary care, pediatrics, a, a lot of them are largely owned by hospitals. Um, and yeah. that was because of that dynamic we talked about earlier. Uh, and so I, I, I don't have a great answer. I I think you're, it's gonna depend on the market. It also depends on the specialties, right? So mental health, as an example, is not owned by the hospitals. (laughs) It's a super fragmented space. You've got 700,000 licensed mental health practitioners out there. Um, you know, dental clinics still pretty fragmented. Um, hospitals aren't buying dental clinics, right? So it really depends on, on the specialty, but historically hospitals have been buying either referral sources like primary care or pediatrics, right? Uh, or the sort of highly reimbursed uh, specialties, right? So cardiology is a good example, or orthopedics. Um, to your other question around sort of what does the, the the patient look like in the future in terms of how they interact with the healthcare system, uh, my view is it's going to be much, much more primary care centric. So mm-hmm. historically, we have reimbursed primary care doctors uh, at a low amount, and they get paid at low amount. And when you look at, you know, any, any medical school, you know, that the primary care specialties are, are not the most prestigious ones. And yet, when you think about what actually drives, you know, care coordination in healthcare, what can drive healthcare spending down, what can do the preventative measures we talked about earlier, primary care plays such an important role. And I think with a lot more of these value-based reimbursement mechanisms, you're going to see a greater emphasis on primary care. When I say primary care, it's not just a primary care doctor. It's also the physician assistants, the nurse practitioners that are playing an increasing role uh, in the delivery of healthcare because be- there's just not enough doctors. Um, the last thing I'd hit on is uh, there is growing attention on social determinants of health. So when you actually dig into why is is someone unhealthy, it's not just because they're not seeing the doctor enough, it's because of the environment that's around them, their job situation, housing situation, transportation, uh, and and so at the end, of the, how much support they get at home, right? And and so increasingly, I think healthcare is taking a more holistic view on the patient. And what's really interesting is you've got a lot of payers, um, for example, managed Medicaid plans that will say, hey, instead of just thinking about healthcare as a provider and a reimbursement schedule, let's actually work to make sure that our patients have housing, have transportation, um, have access to jobs, because that's going to have a lot of downstream Benefits uh, for their healthcare.
2: You know, as you talk through this, you touch on sort of one of the distinctions between you as a financial firm and as a private equity investor in these different uh, segments of healthcare, and you know how a hospital—it's almost—and I could be wrong in this, but it's almost like the hospitals have consolidated and they're trying to decouple to 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 try to suit uh, the patient and and try to. Fit into the healthcare system in what makes sense, and the private equity understands that as they invest in healthcare, and so they create the, the platforms and they they add on to these portfolios in such a way that is is sort of moving us closer to that direction that you're talking about, right? And and I mean it's I, I, we love it because it's it's ultimately about the patient. I think you know it's about the patient and the caregiver. Uh, ultimately, that's what's going to make the system work. Uh, it, it hasn't really been it, about that, and I think we still see strategics uh, moving towards you know shareholder uh, focus, uh, you know, in that way. But but I think uh, as you build uh, on the portfolio, are you doing? Are you looking at it this way, and are you seeing that you know your Um, you're providing actually a benefit to the uh, the healthcare industry and and a service to the patient Uh,
1: absolutely i I think and it's not just us right it it's uh i think any thoughtful investor who's investing in healthcare is aware about the major trends that are going on in healthcare right And, and where the system is moving and so you've got to invest in things that are what we call bending the healthcare cost curve right if you are investing in something where it's costing the system more money or it's taking advantage of some loophole in the system that's not sustainable uh and you're on the wrong side of the healthcare cost curve uh i think on top of that there's an element of professionalization and so if you can build a good healthcare company that has great systems great infrastructure uh you know a a mechanism to be able to recruit and retain and manage providers uh, you're actually increasing access to care. And if you're increasing access to care in a way, for example, with behavioral health, that also lowers costs to the system, uh, then you're actually, you're actually creating a lot of benefit overall.
2: Mark, I, I mean, maybe uh, to move
0: it along, uh, were there, was there another big question that we wanted to, to pose? Yeah, um, we've seen this trend of, of private equity entering the lower middle market, especially over the past two to three years. Um, are there any particular segments that you see private equity deploying capital uh, from a geographic standpoint or uh, segment in particular? How about all of the above?
2: <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so I, you know, I, I think there's a
1: couple of things going on. So when you, if we take a big step back, right? You think about the different industries that that a private equity firm could invest in. Um, the reason why there's so much attention on healthcare is because it's a growing industry, and it's huge, $4 trillion of spend in healthcare. And by the way, most of that is not on drugs or pharmaceuticals. It's on the delivery side of healthcare. Um, and historically, healthcare has been dominated by health systems, nonprofits, or, or mom and pops. And so there wasn't really an opportunity for you know, investors to get involved like they are today. And so you know, when when a, a private equity firm looks at the different industries they can invest in, it's like, wow, you've got sort of a large industry that's that's starting to open up to outside investors you've got really interesting macro dynamics it's it's growing there's a lot of inefficiency like we talked about right so if you can if you can find the right play you can grow quickly there it's pretty recession resilient if you were to plot the growth of U.S. healthcare spend versus uh versus GDP what you'll notice is GDP is a lot more volatile um and uh and, and healthcare is durable uh and so there's a tremendous amount of interest in healthcare from all types of investors the problem is there's not a lot of healthcare assets for them to buy uh and so you know what what are they going to do right so so they can start off by trying to find large assets there's not enough and so they start to move down market right so they started with the large mega cap healthcare companies not that many of them go to middle market still not that many of them very competitive now moving into the lower middle market or if you're like regal will say, hey, if we find an interesting opportunity somewhere and there's not a quote-unquote sizable asset, why don't we start something ourselves, right? And, and so uh, I, I think there's a, a lot of interesting things going on in terms of company creation, company formation to target areas of opportunity in healthcare. Um, the other thing I'd say is h- historically when private equity has come into healthcare, they focused more on lower acuity type healthcare, so there was dental clinics than physical therapy. But they've gotten more and more comfortable with higher acuity areas of healthcare, right? So you're seeing orthopedics, GI, urology, um, cardiology is the next big wave that people are talking about, right? And so there's there's a lot more appetite in you know working with the higher acuity spectrum of healthcare.
2: And so in that sense, Terry, what we have seen too is that traditionally a, a private equity investor will have certain EBITDA or cash flow criteria and that they are going below uh, that criteria as well. Uh, is that still uh, the case? I mean where you know is, is there a floor in that regard uh, because it starts to then feel a little bit more I mean even though these are legacy businesses, but it starts to feel a little bit more speculative. Or you're basing it off of future value, and you know, and I'm I'm wondering is, will that it continue to, to trend in that direction? I, I think the short answer is yes. Um, will
1: continue yep. to trend in that direction, and and the reason why is because you have to remember these these investors, these private equity firms, they've raised a lot of money. They've got to put it to work. That's how they make money. They got to put the money to work to make money. Um, and uh, and and so we've seen. You know a lot more flexibility in terms of hey we say we we have a minimum of 5 million ebitda but 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 this looks like a really interesting asset and we will you know refine our criteria right um and and uh I, i'd say what's also interesting at the lower middle market is you start to get mixed up with growth equity venture capital etc that the boundaries become a lot less clear um, but what is clear is that if you've got a, a good interesting asset with a, a good management team People will overlook the size criteria.
2: Yeah, I, I think that the for us, it's it's been also a big focus on the the caregiving, the the labor, yeah. the personnel aspect of the business. Right? We we don't usually have a, a a product attached to you know, or or an asset, tangible asset base to the businesses we sell. Uh, the businesses are really about selling the people. Uh, You know, whether it's the people that work within the company or the patients that they service. And so in that regard, uh, are there different ways of valuing these businesses uh, that aren't traditional in terms of, you know, multiples of EBITDA cash flow? Or are you looking at, okay, well, what am I gaining synergistically from these, you know, these patients or, you know, in terms of market share or from these caregivers in terms of, you know, handling uh the operations yeah
1: i wouldn't say there's a fundamental difference in in the metric that's used i would say it's more around uh distinguishing between good assets right that have shown to your point about the labor shortages, that have shown a really good ability to recruit and retain their providers um, and that usually means they've got great leadership great culture um or some edge that allows them to to bring these providers on those types of assets are going to command a higher multiple whatever multiple you choose to use um, you know I, i'd say another interesting area is is primary care right and so primary care you know a traditional fee-for-service primary care group may not be generating much ebitda but if someone looks at it and says hey actually you know they can they can feed downstream a lot of other services right then then they're going to look at it maybe as a revenue multiple right um and so you know a lot of it is is if i acquire something what value can it generate long term right? That it's not generating today. And as, as people get more and more interested in healthcare, they're willing to give credit for that longer term value that doesn't exist today.
2: Yeah. You know, it's interesting as you use the term value, it has so many different, uh, definitions, right? And, and so, you know, touching on the idea of value-based modeling, uh, in terms of, let's look at a segment like, uh, you know like home i think home health has been a a big segment for us because of how fragmented it is we went through a big round of value-based modeling conversions over in right before covid right and then we saw covid come about and we saw that there was cms support for these businesses uh a lot of folks wanted to get out of the clinics heal at home uh, and so you know th- we, you see that trends even in a pandemic situation, uh, trends towards uh, these you know, third, these third party or these outside uh, of the hospital or clinic services. Uh, but in terms of value, uh, how do you look at th- how does the CMS or the the regulatory bodies continue to create uh, the value? Uh, for the patient right or or the or, or look at it in terms of uh you know paying for you know PDGM in certain respect how do they create that and how is that not at cross purposes with how you define uh value uh in terms of the investments that you're making because in some cases uh those regulatory uh standards end up devaluing um the the business it might create value for the patient but the but the reimbursement uh the payers all of the things that have to be done in terms of the business infrastructure the costs go up right the reimbursement in fact the reimbursement may be coming down uh in the upcoming year uh so they so it's sort of sort of like the payer bodies have a definition for value and then you have a definition for in terms of investing and what the value of the business is how do those get reconciled?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So so first of all, uh, CMS has explicitly stated a goal that by 2030, they want every Medicare life in some kind of value-based care arrangement, right? In other words, um, it's it's not necessarily fee-for-service that's driving reimbursement, it's outcomes. Now, historically, payers have micromanaged reimbursement in in very complex ways there's fee schedules um there might be quality of an incentive bonuses etc and i think that adds a lot of administrative burden to the system um and it doesn't always incentivize the right behavior and i i think where cms is trying to go is saying hey rather than micromanage a really complex fee schedule right we're going to set up something that looks like an acl reach which is the next generation of ACLs, And we're gonna pay providers a capitated rate. um, And that provider basically has a budget by which they can manage spend for those patients. And they can then design their own reimbursement mechanisms, their own networks, right? To be able to reimburse the right providers, the right amounts to deliver the right level of care. So rather than a master fee schedule driving behavior, um, it's it's gonna in some ways be more decentralized um, it'll add its own complexity, right? But at, at, at the same time, I think you're going to see what the outcome of this is, you're going to see more care being more narrowly focused on a smaller group of providers who can actually generate
2: good outcomes.
1: And those are going to get not only more patients, but also be paid more because they're generating greater outcomes.
2: Yeah, no, And and, and I think that in theory, that makes a lot of sense uh, to us. It, it seems that in practice, and I could be wrong in terms of how it's tried to be incorporated into the market, for instance, managed care organizations, or as we look at Medicare Advantage, um, I think that those systems have n- not been to the the benefit of of the businesses that are uh, in line with what we believe is, is the right uh you know pro- process or, or or way of handling the patient in healthcare so I, w- I would agree
1: with you i think historically what was missing was you needed a gatekeeper right so how how historically have have managed care or even medicare managed healthcare costs well they either manage it by decreasing the, the reimbursement right or by limiting the number of services right um and instead the move towards value-based care is to say the right model most people agree with now is to say hey can we shift the risk from the payer right into some kind of either primary care provider or some kind of intermediary gatekeeper that then says okay i don't have to live off of a set fee schedule right i can choose my own providers that i send patients to i can i can negotiate rates with them right and i i can be the one that that incentivizes the right level of Um, Because you're right, in in the old world where the only way to manage cost was to limit care or limit pricing, that didn't work out so well, Um, especially when you're limiting preventative type care. Uh, But in in the new world where you can say, hey, I've got access to data now that tells me who are the right providers that are delivering the right kind of care, that that are generating the right outcomes. Okay, now I'm going to incentivize those providers, right? not just necessarily with higher rates, but also funnel more volume to them. That's how you start to shift the system.
2: Yeah, we, we had a uh, cl- client recently uh, that their patients were all, they, they were all HMO patients um, from Kaiser. And they had, uh, so, and Kaiser had set up uh, what would they called uh, partnerships uh, with these home health businesses uh, you know that were uh, local to uh, to their to their area, and it worked out really well because they Kaiser paid a, a fee for uh, for the patient based on visits, and right. those metrics allowed the provider then to say, okay, well, here are my costs associated with that, and there was enough of a spread there. I think that the challenge we see is that you have expectation that. You know, we we put all of this weight on the value of first responders and and on, you know, the these caregivers that go in there. Um, But you're not really they are not really getting paid much to do this work and to help other people. And it's hard work. And so, you know, you know, I I think you have to give there has to be a little bit more give on the amounts that are paid. And then you have to let uh, the providers who ultimately set up their businesses because they truly care about the patient. I mean, sure, there is some bad actors in there. Um, I think we've, you know, flushed them out to a certain extent, but I, I, think that in terms of how you, what gets paid and how you let the the operators manage those payments, um, you know, the, we, we need to give give a little bit more and and you know, abdicate a little bit more of the uh, the responsibility to these folks who have the patients directly in their sights. Yeah, I, I would
1: I would qualify that by saying um, in the past. Right. Different provider groups would always be lobbying for higher payments. Um, and it was really hard for the end payer to say, well, who's actually doing a good job or not?
0: And I'd say yeah, right. what
1: what's changed now uh, is and, and it'll continue moving in this direction is we actually have a lot more visibility into data. Right. So we we like anyone with access to claims data will have a decent sense of, hey, a, a given specialist, how do they compare to another specialist in the same area? In terms of the number of tests they're running up in terms of the types of procedures they're doing in terms of the cost of the patient after the specialist sees them um and that type of data and benchmarking facilitates you know a payer or a risk-bearing provider group who actually is becoming the payer right to then pick and choose and incentivize the right kinds of behavior
0: terry let me ask you this so um over the next ten years, as these organizations that understand patient outcomes and value that, those will start to rise up. It'll probably squeeze out the the less the providers that are less focused on that, and you have continued consolidation. What does healthcare look like in 2030 as, as CMS pushes towards that that value based care?
1: I think it's a great question. I, I think if you were to continue the trend now, um, I think there's you're going to see more and more consolidation, not necessarily into the health systems, but but into larger groups because when you really drill down into what does value-based care require Mm -hmm. value-based care requires deep investments in infrastructure systems and people, right? The people part, you're going to need, for example, more medical assistance to follow up on patients as, as one example. Um, and for the more sophisticated groups that want to take risk, value-based care requires them to have capital as risk reserves. And so I, I think, um, you know so I, I I think you're gonna move in a direction where you know the, the one doc, two doc shop um is, is largely going it already it has been disappearing but it's, mm-hmm. it's it's gonna continue to disappear. Um and I think it's an open question of hey like are they gonna end up in the hospital like they have historically or or you know group larger larger groups. Um but but I, I think the days of, of people being able to hang up a shingle that's gonna be really hard.
0: How does that uh, how does that pair with your statement on the fact that physician groups are exiting hospital systems, or you're seeing that trend at least? Well, that's that's the important qualifier: physician groups. Got it. that's fair. Okay. So, if you're a physician
1: group uh, and and you've got enough doctors and you want to exit, right? You're still you're still a, a group. Yeah, that's the important part. So,
2: okay. well, well, I think one touch on that to Terry is that what would you say to the the physicians out there that you know, have held out, um, you know, there's, there's still those smaller groups, you know, sub five physicians in the building. Um, what do you say to them in terms of encouraging them to, to move in that direction? Uh, just because, we, you know, they, they have their doubts, um, they have perceptions about uh, the financial community, investing and in consolidation and loss of certain control, and ultimately not being able to do what they were trained to do uh, in, you know, in a way that gives them, you know, autonomy over the patient. Um, what do what do you say, what do you say to them in terms of you know in moving them in that direction? And you know, who should they look be looking out for in terms of an investor? What what is the characteristic of that dynamic?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Look, I I I don't think that an investor group or private equity is the right solution for all groups, right? Nor is it the only solution. Um, I think, however, I think if you're a small group. Uh, you do need to be uh, investing in systems, technology, and data to prepare yourself for value-based care. I think that there is a path, for example, for you to get larger by yourself by recruiting more doctors or maybe doing a, a merger with another group that doesn't require an outside investor. Um, I, I, I think if you, I think it's going to be hard staying small in a value-based care world, and. Um, and even, even something as simple as saying, hey, like we, we want to be able to afford to hire four or five medical assistants to follow up on our patients to make sure they show up to their appointments, et cetera. Like that, that's one of those things where a larger group, whether they're backed by investors or not, right, is better equipped to handle. But I, I wanna I wanna make it clear though, there is a lot of technology and data solutions out there that are meant to enable physicians to stay independent. What we've seen though is the adoption of that. Hasn't been as high as people have hoped, and I think that's going to start changing as there's more and more pressure to move into a value-based world.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of uh, what we talk about is one of the great attributes or benefits of working with a capital partner that has expertise in you know the industry that they're investing in is that th- they can take a lot of that burden away from uh, the physician in, in this case. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and then, you know, you can centralize some of the administration. Yeah. Um, and and ideally, you're, you're really investing, as you said earlier, in management groups, in senior executives, in, in the physicians, in the owners of these companies, and hoping that you can facilitate what they do best um, and, and take on some of the other burdens. Uh, yeah. I, I, and I've seen those relationships happen. I just think that there's a perception that it, it's a lot of, you know, the old LBO stuff come in, you know, and, uh, got the business and, and, you know, resell it.
1: And, and by the way, I, I
2: also want to make it clear. There are
1: a lot of bad apples as well in investment. Right. So, um, so to your question earlier, Hey, if you're a physician group and you're thinking about taking on an investor, what, what should you, what should you look for? What should you avoid? I would say a couple of things, be careful about a group that wants to borrow a lot of money to acquire you. The the debt, is is it's just like if you overextend yourselves buying a house with a lot of debt, it, it can work both ways. Um, I, I think uh, it's really important that your clinical philosophy aligns with the group that that wants to invest in you, right? Um, and look, we've we've seen bad apples out there where uh, they're not going to do right by the patient, uh, where they're going to, you know, push. Uh, for a lot of unnecessarily unnecessary care in order to, to, to boost the revenues. And in the past, you might have been able to get away with it. But again, we're in a value-based world. And and so that type of stuff will catch up to you. It's, it's bad medicine and it's bad business. Um, I'd say watch out for groups um, that are, are just looking for a quick flip. Uh, a lot of the stuff that we we're talking about here, it takes time. Uh, this is not a hey. This is not like I'm flipping a house and I'm I'm in and out in a year, right? Um, in fact, the the quick flippers they're more incentivized to to do the the bad things we've talked about. Um, do prioritize groups that are really really focused on uh, human capital development, right? That that want to say hey, how can I be thoughtful about recruiting clinicians or physicians, retaining them, um, providing a career path for them. Uh, because that's that's incredibly important uh, for for any of these healthcare services companies. Um, to your point earlier, these these clinicians are your are the heart and soul of the company, and uh, and you need a investor group that appreciates and acknowledges that and is willing to invest in that development.
2: Terry, I, I think this is just really incredible uh, information. You can see how thoughtful Regal is, and uh, and, I'm, and I I'm really appreciative of of you sharing. Uh, these insights uh, I, I think that transparency is is really uh the name of the game uh, in the especially in the lower middle market uh, now I mean there's, there's so much sophistication there and they can see us coming if we're not you know completely uh open about what our intentions are and and you know what what the outcomes we expect are uh, I, I would just say that you know when one of the the concerns I have in the market with with uh, w- with the clients that we work with is that they see these deals going on, uh, in the macro, uh, in, in the large cap, uh, arena and they're, you know, things like, um, like Amazon, uh, buying up, uh, you know, digital <laughs> yeah, one medical and digital health. And that's what's on our minds right now. And you, you start to get worried about where, this where do where do you where do I fit in all of this? Because it looks like the legislature is allowing these uh, consolidations on a massive, massive level. But ultimately, Amazon, like with their pharmacy, for instance, they can't handle uh, the specialized patient. They they're not bespoke to the needs of the people that they're you know th- th- that they're taking care of. Um, but they can do these large distribution networks and they can definitely get things to people and all that. How do you reconcile that uh, in terms of telling people, look, no, you know, the future is going to be that you do what you do. Um, It's not going to be that we try to create this huge, uh, you know, automated network of services, because ultimately customer service uh, and, and patient bespoke services are what matter. Uh, and th- what would ultimately be valued in this market? A- absolutely. I-
1: I'd say a couple of things. Look, healthcare is inherently a very local service delivery mechanism, right? Even if a group is part of a larger group, at the end of the day, it's, it's local. It's neighborhood-based. Um, healthcare is inherently very human-centric, right? It's, it's not just about the procedure someone is doing or the test they're running. It's about the relationship they develop with that patient and so there's always going to be a need. In fact, there's more demand than supply <laughs> of right. healthcare practitioners by, by and large. I, I think that there is a, a question of sort of how are these practitioners organized? And uh, I, I don't think there's going to be a one-size-fits-all model or a winner-take-all model. There's not going to be the equivalent of the Google search engine that dominates you know, healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be a variety of different organizational forms. We've talked about that today, health systems, um, insurance companies, Amazon, private equity-backed group. A- at the end of the day though, what really matters is do you have a group of practitioners that can generate good outcomes and lower costs in healthcare? And depending on the market, depending on the specialty, right? there's gonna be different kinds of winners, um, but there's not gonna be a one size fits all solution
0: so at minimum there will always be a need for smaller providers now smaller is the question how small uh maybe the better way to say it is more niche uh, in terms of how things are developing
1: absolutely um and and those smaller providers don't necessarily have to join a health system in fact i would argue the way value-based care is moving um it's actually leveling the playing field Um, but those smaller providers do need to invest in their data their technology their clinical care protocols so that they can operate more effectively in a value-based role.
0: Well, Terry, we can't thank you enough for, for joining us and having this conversation. Uh, it was a pleasure to, to hear your thoughts from the investment standpoint. And I can ensure our viewers, this won't be the last time we involve Terry in, in some of our publication here, so.
2: If he wants to uh, be involved.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, no, this, is, this is this is a lot of fun for me. I, I feel like every time I, I get a question, I you know, it makes me rethink uh, different things as well, so. Uh, I'm honored to be on this and and uh, to be able to engage with you guys.
2: Yeah, well, we got a, we got a pro uh, interviewee at a, at a really good cost.
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so,
2: <laughs> we're, we're bending the cost curve for the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> infinite, infinite, uh, a multiple here. There you go. So,
0: <laughs> well, for additional content, you can find us at www.mahealthcareadvisors.com. We have numerous videos and blog posts on the state of the market what we're seeing from sell-side operators, and uh, great interviews with people like Terry. So feel free to visit us there. You can find our other podcasts on Apple Music and Spotify, and we look forward to sharing more with you in the coming episodes. Thanks everyone.